0: Welcome to the Nutrition Facts Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greger. I'm thrilled that you've decided to join me today, because the more I learn about the latest in nutrition research, the more convinced I am that this information can make a real difference in all our lives. And I like nothing better than sharing it with you. There's no cure for psoriasis yet, but there are different schools of thought on treatment. In our first story, aloe gel is put to the test head-to-head versus steroids. Psoriasis is a chronic inflammatory skin disease that affects about 1 in 40 people, making it one of the most frequent chronic skin diseases worldwide. There's lots of drugs for it, some of which cost more than $100,000 a year, to get a response. Uh, there are cheaper drugs, like cyclosporin, but they carry the long-term risk of mm, kidney damage, hypertension, and malignancies. The drug can cause cancer, kidney toxicity, in more than 50% of the patients treated long-term, and in terms of malignancies, up to 42 times the rate of cancer. And it doesn't even work that well, uh, keeping the disease at bay in little more than half of patients over a four month period. There's got to be a better way. What about plants, uh, topical botanical agents for the treatment of psoriasis? Well, aloe vera gel is said to possess anti inflammatory, anti itching, and wound healing properties. Uh, yeah, but As I described before, when it was put to the test for wound healing, it actually made things worse. The exploitation of aloe preparations has been accompanied too often by misinformation and exaggerated claims, but there is some impressive evidence. Uh, For example, to test its anti-inflammatory properties, it was tested head-to-head against steroids for mustard gas exposure. Mustard gas is probably the most popular chemical warfare agent Uh, starting in World War I. The last widespread military use was in the 80s during the Iran-Iraq War, with more than 100,000 exposed, and many still suffering from the long-term complications, Uh, predominantly itching. Even decades after surviving a gas attack, 70 to 90 percent are still suffering. Topical steroids are the most frequently administered medications, and they help, but long-term use is not recommended and is associated with a variety of side effects. Therefore, how about safer agents like aloe vera? 67 chemical warfare-injured vets were randomized to apply aloe vera olive oil cream or the steroids, and the aloe vera mixture appeared to work as well as the drug. Okay, well, then let's... Give it a try for the management of psoriasis. By the end of the month-long study, the aloe vera cream had cured 83% of the patients, compared to the placebo cure rate of less than 10%, resulting in significant clearance of the psoriatic plaque skin lesions. All right, but that's compared to an inactive placebo. How about compared to steroids? Aloe was found to be more effective in reducing the clinical symptoms. In this double-blind, placebo-controlled study of a commercial aloe vera gel in the treatment of slight to moderate psoriasis, things got better in 70% of the aloe-treated sites, but 80% of the placebo-treated areas improved. The placebo beat out the aloe. The high response rate of the placebo gel indicated a possible effect in its own right. The the placebo was just basically xanthan gum and water, and they were like, hey, instead of aloe failing, maybe xanthan gum just works too? All in all, the results on the effectiveness of aloe vera for psoriasis are contradictory, but applying it on the skin appears safe, so I figure, why not give it a try? In our next story, we learn about two ways in which salt may drive autoimmune diseases, such as multiple sclerosis, psoriasis, type 1 diabetes, Sjogren's syndrome, asthma, and rheumatoid arthritis. Millions suffer from asthma attacks triggered by exercise. Within five minutes of starting exercising, people can get short of breath, start coughing and wheezing, such that lung function significantly drops. But on a high salt diet, the attack is even worse. Whereas on a low salt diet, there's hardly a significant drop in function at all. To figure out why, researchers had them all cough up sputum from their lungs, and those on the high salt diet ended up with triple the inflammatory cells, and up to double the concentration of inflammatory mediators. But why? What does salt intake have to do with? Inflammation, we didn't know until now. The Western diet, high in saturated fat and salt, has long been postulated as one potential cause for the increasing incidence of autoimmune diseases in developed countries. The rapidly increasing incidence of autoimmune diseases may be due to an overactivation of immune cells called helper-17 cells, The development of multiple sclerosis, psoriasis, type 1 diabetes, Sjogren's, asthma, and rheumatoid arthritis have all been shown to involve this T-helper 17-driven inflammation, and one trigger for the activation of those Th17 cells may be elevated levels of salt in our bloodstream. The sodium content of processed foods and fast food can be more than 100 times higher in comparison to similar homemade meals. And sodium chloride, salt, appears to drive autoimmune disease by the induction of these disease-causing Th17 cells. Turns out there's a salt-sensing enzyme responsible for triggering the formation of these Th17 cells. Organ damage caused by high-salt diets may also activate another type of inflammatory immune cell. A high-salt diet can overwork the kidneys, starving them of oxygen, triggering inflammation. The more salt they gave people, the more activation of inflammatory monocyte cells associated with high-salt intake-induced kidney oxygen deficiency. But this study only lasted two weeks. What about long-term? One of the difficulties in doing sodium experiments is it's hard to get free-living folks to maintain a specific salt intake. You can do what are called metabolic ward studies, where essentially lock people in a hospital ward for a few days and control their food intake, but you can't do that long-term unless you can lock people in a space capsule. Mars 520 was a 520-day space flight simulation to see how people might do on the way to Mars and back. What they found was that those on a high-salt diet displayed a markedly higher number of monocytes, which are a type of immune cell you often see increased in settings of chronic inflammation and autoimmune disorders. This may reveal one of the consequences of excess salt consumption in our everyday lives, since that so-called high-salt intake may actually just be the average salt intake. Furthermore, there was an increase in the levels of pro-inflammatory mediators and a decrease in the level of anti-inflammatory mediators, suggesting that a high-salt diet has the potential to bring about an excessive immune response, which may damage the immune balance and result in either difficulties in getting rid of inflammation or even an increased risk of autoimmune disease. What if you already have an autoimmune disease? Sodium intake is associated with increased disease activity in multiple sclerosis. If you follow MS patients for a few years, those eating more salt had three to four times the exacerbation rate, three times more likely to develop new MS lesions in their brains, and on average had eight more brain lesions. 14 in their brain compared to 6 in the low-salt group. So the next step is to try treating patients with salt reduction and see if they get better. But since reducing our salt intake is a healthy thing to do anyway, I don't see why anyone should have to wait. In our final story, we hear about an elegant experiment in which the blood of those eating different types of spices, such as cloves, ginger, rosemary, and turmeric, is tested for anti-inflammatory capacity. Once in a while I come across a study that's so juicy I do an entire video about it. It's like my Which Fruit Fights Cancer Better video, or the best cooking method one, or that one comparing thousands of foods. Well, this is one such study. A group of researchers at U of F, Gainesville, and Penn State set up an elegant experiment. We've known ounce per ounce that uh, herbs and spices have some of the greatest antioxidant activities known, but that's in a test tube. Before we can ask if an herb or spice has health benefits, it's first necessary to determine whether it's bioavailable. This has never been done until now. They could have went the easy route and just measured the change in antioxidant level in one's bloodstream before and after consumption. But the assumption that the appearance of antioxidant activity in the blood is an indicator of bioavailability has a weakness. Maybe more gets absorbed than we think, but doesn't show up on antioxidant tests because it gets bound up to protein or cells, so they attempted to measure physiological changes in the blood. They were interested in whether absorbed compounds would be able to protect white blood cells from an oxidative or inflammatory injury, whether it uh, would protect the strands of our DNA from breaking when confronted by free radicals. They also wondered if the consumption of herbs and spices might alter cellular inflammatory responses in the presence of a physiologically relevant inflammatory insult. Uh, What does this all mean? Well, What they did was take a bunch of people and had each of them eat different types of spices for a week. There's so many really unique things about this study, but one was that the quantity that study subjects consumed was based on the usual levels of consumption in actual food. Like you know, the oregano group was given a half teaspoon a day, uh, the kinds of practical quantities people might actually eat once in a while. Then at the end of the week, they drew blood from the dozen or so people they had adding black pepper to their diets that week, and compared the result, the effects of their blood to the effects of the blood of the dozen on cayenne, or cinnamon, or cloves, or cumin. They had about 10 different groups of people eating about 10 different spices. Then they dripped their plasma, the liquid fraction of their blood, onto human white blood cells in a petri dish that had been exposed to an inflammatory insult. Uh, They wanted to pick something really inflammatory, so they chose oxidized cholesterol, which is like what you'd get in your bloodstream after eating something like fried chicken. So they jabbed the white blood cells with oxidized cholesterol and then measured how much TNF they produced in response. Tumor necrosis factor is a powerful inflammatory cytokine, infamous for the role it plays in autoimmune attacks, like inflammatory bowel disease. Compared to the blood of those who ate no spices for a week, was the blood of those eating black pepper able to significantly dampen the inflammatory response? No. What about any of these other spices? Cloves, ginger, rosemary, and turmeric were able to significantly stifle the inflammatory response. And remember, remember, they weren't dripping the spices themselves on these human white blood cells, but the blood of those who ate the spices. And so it represents what might happen when cells in our body are exposed to the levels of spices that circulate in our bloodstream after normal daily consumption not you know, mega doses in some pill, just the amount that you know, makes our spaghetti sauce taste good, or our pumpkin pie, or curry sauce. There are drugs that can do the same thing. Uh, tumor necrosis factors are such major mediators of inflammation and inflammation-related re- diseases that there are these TNF-blocking drugs on the market for the treatment of inflammatory diseases like osteoarthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, and closing spondylitis, uh, which rake in, collectively, more than $20 billion a year, uh, because drug companies charge people $15,000 to $20,000 a year for the drug. At that price, the side effects better be hugs and rainbows. But no, these drugs carry a black label warning, because they can cause things like mm, cancer, heart failure, if only there were a cheaper, safer solution. Curcumin, the yellow pigment in turmeric, a spice that's a tad cheaper and safer, but does it work outside of a test tube? There's evidence that it may help in all the diseases for which TNF blockers are currently being used, and so, with healthcare costs and safety being such major issues, this golden spice turmeric may help provide the solution. We would love it if you could share with us your stories about reinventing your health through evidence-based nutrition. Go to nutritionfacts.org forward slash testimonials. We may share it with our social media to help inspire others. To see any graphs, charts, graphics, images, or studies mentioned here, please go to the Nutrition Facts podcast landing page. There you'll find all the detailed information you need, plus links to all the sources we cite for each of these topics. Be sure to check out my new How Not to Die cookbook. It's beautifully designed with more than 100 recipes for delicious and nutritious plant-based meals, snacks, and beverages. All proceeds I receive from the sale of all my books goes to charity. NutritionFacts.org is a non science-based public service where you can sign up for free daily updates on the latest in nutrition research via bite-sized videos and articles. Everything on the website is free. There's no ads, no corporate sponsorship, strictly non-commercial, not selling anything, just put it up as a public service as a labor of love, as a tribute to my grandmother, whose own life was saved with evidence-based nutrition. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Facts. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greger.